please join me in a word of prayer. Lord, how grateful I am to have this book in my hand and to be in a room full of Bibles, your word. On this weekend, I'm grateful for the freedoms we have in this country, especially the freedom of religion. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Psalms that we have the prayers of your King David recorded here. I ask now that you would help me preach and that you would help each one of us to seek your face. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you were to look at our church's vision statement, which I hope you have, you would see the four words of our vision, extending grace, discipling generations, and then you would see seven core values. One of those core values is emotional health. And I'm going to hit on that this morning uh, as I preach in this sermon series. And we have some text under that value. Emotional health is growing in self-awareness and seeking transformation in community. In fact, uh, at the end of the service, I'm going to show you a little video from that, the Rooted Retreat and the Alpha Retreat this last weekend of some transformation that people experienced in community. Now, one of my favorite um, psychologists or authors is the late Rabbi Edwin Friedman, who wrote extensively on a type of counseling for communities, family systems theory. And he defines emotional health like this. He says it's being self-differentiated, meaning you know who you are and how you're different from another person. You are able to regulate your own anxiety. So you're aware when your anxiety is building and then you have coping mechanisms to, to regulate that, to lower your anxiety so you can have a non-anxious presence. And as you learn who you are, you're, how you're different from others, you also are putting in your life boundaries, certain boundaries of what you're willing to do and not do, or how you're willing to be spoken to or not, and what you would do in a certain circumstance. And one of the teachings of Friedman is that as a person becomes more emotionally healthy, as a person becomes better self-defined and has better boundaries, you need to expect sabotage because other people will not like that you're getting healthy. Other people will not like that you have boundaries in your life and they will try to subvert that. They will sabotage you. It's not even necessarily cognitive on their part. They will just, it, it, they will not be self-aware enough to realize that they're threatened by your health and they will try to take you out. And that takes a whole bunch of different forms. Two of them are slander and gossip. Slander is a lie spoken about you in order to harm you. Gossip is a truth spoken about you in order to harm you. Did you hear what so-and-so did? Did you hear what happened to so-and-so? It might be a true thing, but you're saying it in some way to harm the person, to bring them down. So that's the difference between slander and gossip. And those are just two forms of the kind of sabotage you can experience. Now, Jesus said for his followers that we are to love our enemies to pray for those who persecute us, but how do we do that? Now, this week was our annual diocesan synod. So Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we were in Tallahassee. I just got back last night, and the clergy go the day, a day early. So we go on Thursday, and this year, our bishop had uh, the Reverend John Yates, a priest who was for decades at the Falls Church in Virginia, one of the biggest and um, most effective ministries in the Anglican way. Um, he came and spoke to us. And one of the things he said is, if you're going to be effective in gospel ministry, you've got to learn to pray. And he said, if you want to learn to pray, you have to learn how to pray the Psalms. And he personally has a pattern of praying through the Psalms every 30 days and has for years. And he was saying, you've got to learn to pray the Psalms. They will help you pray. 
Now today we're going to look at Psalm 17, and I want to encourage you to have a Bible in front of you, grab a pew Bible, take a look at Psalm 17, and as you get there, I want to make a couple comments about the Psalms in general. One is the Psalms are Jesus's prayer book. Our Lord had the book of Psalms as part of his worship as a Jewish man 2,000 years ago. Also, Psalms are highly refined poems, songs, hymns, and every word matters. Just like a poet would, would try to have a word economy and thinks very specifically about meter in each word, the Psalms are like that. So for us to get a lot out of them, we need to reflect on them. We need to sit with them for a little while. We need to understand some things about them. This particular song, psalm, is in the genre of a lament. It's a personal lament. It's different than, say, a hymn of praise. In a hymn of praise, the universe is awesome. Everything is going well. The covenant with God is fully in place, and we praise him for that. But in a personal lament, the world is in turmoil. The, the poet or the songwriter or the psalmist is saying, God, you're good, but my life is a wreck right now. There's a problem happening. And he is praying through this. King David is the one who, to whom this psalm is attributed, and he's praying this personal lament because he's being attacked. I know somebody who is advancing in their career. They're doing really well professionally, uh, getting some promotions, recognition, and there's somebody else in that environment who has not done so well and has been looked over for promotions. And that person is subverting the other person, sabotaging, slandering them, saying bad things about them. Do you know who I'm talking about? If you think you do, you're wrong. Because I'm thinking of two people in particular in this congregation, and if I had to guess, just among you, there's probably dozens of people that describes. It might be you that, that, that describes you. You are advancing, and somebody's trying to take you out. That happens all the time. It's all over the place, and King David dealt with it. How did he deal with it? How did he pray? This psalm is going to show us something that is really important. And King David finds strength in the face of God. That's my main point. And I'm going to specify that God is actually Jesus. But King David didn't have the knowledge yet that we do. He knew something about it. He prophesied that the Christ was coming. But we find strength in the face of Jesus. Now, if you had your own Bible, which you probably don't, I would encourage you to take a marker and circle every word in there that's, that deals with human anatomy, the eye, the ear, mouth, lips, hearts. There's a lot in here, the face. In particular, there's a lot of anatomical parts around the face, and the psalmist is using those specific body parts to describe things like his word, what's being spoken, what he believes. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this passage apart under three specific parts, the lips, the eye, and the whole face. Verse number one, it says this, hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. You see, what's going on in this personal lament is King David is being slandered. He's being attacked by people falsely, and he's coming to God and he's saying, hear my cry from lips that are free of deceit. That's a pretty bold statement. He's saying, I'm not lying. My lips are honest. What I say is true. When I read that, though, it caught me for a minute because I immediately thought of James. If you know the Apostle James, uh, the, the, book that bear, the letter that bears his name in the back of the Bible, um, James says this when it comes to words. 
He's, in James 3, 2, it says, all of us struggle in many ways. If someone does not struggle in what he says, he is a perfect man. It is so hard for us to speak well all the time, to say the right things. Jesus said that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. That just passes through your body. It's what comes out of your mouth that shows you're unclean because out of the mouth overflows the heart. And so if anyone is able to speak well, he's a perfect man. It shows perfection. And David is not perfect. Last week, we talked about confession. He advocates confession. He writes a lot of confession. So what is he talking about here? Well, he's saying, in this cause, God, search my heart. I am not in the wrong. My enemy is slandering me, and I call you to be my judge. You, the God to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. He's calling out to God, asking for vindication. Now, how is it that he's able to say, I am free of deceit? Well, verse 3 and 4 says it. He makes a declaration in verse 3. He says, I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. Could you say the same? Have you set as a purpose in your life to not sin in your speech, to not use your words in iniquity or harmful ways, to not slander others or gossip? Have you even decided that's something you want to do? I want to be a person who speaks well and kindly in timely words. Now, it's dangerous for me because I'm an extrovert processor. I have to talk to think, so I have to sometimes say things, and then it comes out, and I go, ooh, I don't like how that sounded. Let, let me, that's not what I meant. But like the tube of toothpaste, once the words are out, you can't get them back in. But at least to purpose that I will not sin with my mouth is a good thing. Have you done that? David says, I have purposed that I will not sin with my mouth, with my words. And then he tells us how he's gone about it in the next verse. In verse 4, he says, with regard to the works of man, which is referring to secular living, how society works, what mankind, what other people are doing, with regard to that, by the word of your lips, Lord, I have avoided the ways of the violent. I'm not going down the path that society's going down. I'm going to build my life on the words of your lips, God, the word of God. That's how King David has decided he is going to live. Do you know, Jesus was slandered a number of times in a number of different ways. And do you know that the devil is sometimes referred to as both the adversary and the slanderer? When Jesus was first baptized and God, his father said, I love you, you're my son, I'm pleased with you. He was driven out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. And the slanderer, the adversary came and challenged him basically saying, you're not the son of God. You're not special. If you're the son of God, say to this stone, become bread. You know how Jesus responded to that? He said, man does not live by bread alone. That's all he said there. But he was quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. And there's a second part to that. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what Deuteronomy 8.3 says. So it's by the word of God that we find our life. King David knew that. Jesus knew that. And so the encouragement here is to build our lives according to the word of God. Now, we're in a series called Liturgy, the work of the people. That's what the word liturgy means. And what I'm doing here in this, these four weeks is I'm setting up the transition that we're going to experience on December 1st, which is we're going to start using the new Anglican 2019 Book of Common Prayer. We did a class just now before this. We'll do one next, the next two weeks during Sunday school in that, sl that time slot. And the prayer book is intentional. 
If you were to take a prayer book and highlight the Eucharistic service, every place in it that is a, a quote, a direct quote, or an allusion to a word of Scripture, you would have a lot of highlighting. The whole worship service is steeped in the Bible, and that's intentional. It is, it is washing our minds with God's Word. My family, and many of you, know Philippians 4. Don't be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication. So you know it because I have prayed that over you for years now at the end of the service. I pick different ones from time to time, but it's by repetition. You're, you are bringing your word, your mind under the word of God. That's intentional in how we worship. This is a biblical worship order. And as the Anglophiles, those that love the Anglican ways and they love the English language say, in Latin, ironically, lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of praying is the law of believing. How you pray shapes what you believe. And by praying through the Psalms and by praying through the scriptures over and over again, it actually forms you. We are formed by worshiping this way. It's part of why we do what we do on Sunday mornings. We're being formed by it because we want to be people of the book. We want to fashion our lives according to the word of God, not the works of man and society. So there he says, lips, I'm, I'm coming to you here, give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. And then the second thing is the eye. Look down at this famous passage, verse 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Now, in the Hebrew, it doesn't actually have the word for apple at all. This is a strange translation, and it's a, an, an idiomatic phrase. In Hebrew, it, lit it literally means, keep me as the little man in your eye. But it's referring to the pupil. It's actually part of the anatomy of the eye, the pupil, the center, the the thing through which light comes in the, 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 the center of your eye. Keep me in your eye. Keep me in the center of your eyesight. Look over me. Watch over me. Now, when I'm slandered or when I hear that somebody has misrepresented me or when I'm being attacked in some way, do you know what my sinful human temptation is to do? I want to go and face that person. I want to set the facts straight. I want to put them in the right place. But you know what David's orientation is? He turns his face to God. And he says in here, you're my savior. He's not going to solve his own problem. He's going to cry out to God to do it. He says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Just before that, verse 7, wondrously show your steadfast love. That's that word hased, loving kindness, the covenant faithfulness. Show me that love, O savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. God says, that vengeance belongs to him. It's not for us to go and avenge wrongdoing. We, we're to go to him as the Savior, and he will deal with it in his way. David does that. He turns to God and says, you're my Savior. This is not a self-help idea. This is a God-help idea. I can't fix this problem. In fact, the adversaries are not open to reason. Their hearts are closed. Their sight is fixed on harm. He describes that here. But what David is doing is he's modeling a life of dependence, and in this country, we really value our independence. But what I'm telling you is to experience the goodness of God, you have to lay that down. You have to come to him as your savior and stop trying to save yourself. He is the savior, and David recognizes that. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Keep your eye focused on me, Lord. Be my savior. Save me. So we've got lips, the word of God. We've got eye, the apple of God's eye. And then we have the whole face. David longed to see God. Look at the last verse of this psalm, verse 18, or excuse me, 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. 
When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. King David knew in the spirit ahead of time that the resurrection was coming. When I awake is not referring to a nice afternoon nap. He's talking about death. When I die, that's not the end. I will be raised and I will be satisfied to behold your face. He is fully expecting to see the face of God. In fact, the psalm right before this, Psalm 16, the key phrase is, you will not abandon my soul to to the grave. He was looking ahead to actually Jesus and prophesying that Jesus would not see corruption. It's picked up in Acts in a couple of the sermons of the early church, one from Peter in Acts 2 and one from Paul in Acts 13, where David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Jesus, that the resurrection was going to happen. But the thing is, there's a resurrection coming, and David was expecting to be raised in that resurrection and to get to see the face of God. In contrast, do you know what the wicked person, the worldly person can expect? And many people are happy with this. Look at verse 14. Um, Men of this world whose portion is in this life, you, God, fill their womb with treasure, they're satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. Most people want to live a good life, have resources and wealth, and leave it as an inheritance. But that's pretty short-sighted for an eternal soul. David is like, their portion is in this life, but my portion is that I'm going to get to see your face. And for David being attacked and slandered and gossiped about, he's turning his face to the face of God. He's saying, I'm building my life on the lips, your words of your lips. I'm calling out to you to watch over me with your eyes as my Savior, and I'm looking forward to the day when I will stand before you and see your face. That will be my reward. This idea is picked up in the New Testament in uh, 2 Corinthians 4. The Apostle Paul is writing after Christ's resurrection. Can you imagine what David might have written in one of these Psalms if he had the whole book in his hand? He didn't get to see the cross and resurrection, at least not the way that we do. We have, we've seen Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John show us Christ. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says this. He's, he's using the reference of Moses coming down from the mountain. He had been in the presence of God, and Moses' face was glowing. It was shining. And the people were freaked out, right? I mean, that would be kind of spooky, right? Your leader goes, meets with God in the cloud, comes down off the mountain, and his face is like glowing, like really bright. So he put a veil over it, and the glow slowly faded. And, and using that idea, the Apostle Paul says, even if our gospel message is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not we ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for his sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To see the face of Jesus Christ is to see the glory of God. And then in the same chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, he says this. I'm paraphrasing. It doesn't matter how badly you're suffering. It's really kind of minor in the grand scheme of things. He says it this way. This light momentary affliction. I like how he does that. I mean, David was being pursued by Saul. His life was at risk. He was being chased out into the desert. He was hiding. People were trying to kill him. They wanted to take him out. And so for for the apostle Paul to use this kind of language, 
Paul was also being chased and threatened and beaten and going to be killed. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. By the hope of what is coming, that we are going to see Christ face to face, we're able to suffer the attacks of enemies. We're able to pray like he did. We are able to find strength in the face of Jesus. This is really, really good news. What the liturgy does is it shapes us with the word of God. It shows us in a number of different ways how God is our savior in Christ. And it points to a future, a future glory that makes whatever suffering we have now pale in comparison to what is coming. What good news this is, how amazing this is. And what the liturgy does is it changes our perspective. It shapes us and forms us. That's why we worship God the way that we do. Now, as for those enemies, those people that want to hurt us, those that sabotage us, in many ways, they're both perpetrators and victims. Their hearts are hard. These attackers, he says, they close their hearts to pity. Their mouths, they speak arrogantly. These wicked people aren't, they don't understand what's going on. For the Christian, you recognize you're in a much bigger thing. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers. There's a darkness in this world that wants to take Christians out, and people are oftentimes collateral damage. As they say, hurting people hurt people. People hurt you, and they don't realize they're doing it sometimes. They don't realize what's going on. That emotional health isn't there. That self-awareness isn't there. You might be experiencing success, and it brings up an insecurity of them, and they try to subvert you because of it. That's what David was having here. He was praising God, and King Saul was, was not praising God and was starting to be threatened by this gifted young David who was looking like he was going to take over the throne because God was going to give him the throne. And so Saul, out of his insecurity, began to attack David, and David prayed like this. So how is it that we pray for our enemies? Like this. And God is our Savior, and we fashion our life around his word, and then we look forward to the day when we'll get to see his face. This is really good news. Let's give him thanks for it. Lord, again, I'm grateful for King David in this psalm. I'm thankful for you being our Savior. Lord, for anyone in here who is not trusted in you, I pray for the courage to do so. Open their hearts to see your loving kindness. And Lord, I do pray for those who wish us ill or want to harm us or would speak poorly about us to hurt us. We hold them up before you. We pray for you to change their hearts and to heal them as well. Thank you, Lord. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We invite you now to kneel.